for those of you who have hung around uh, Diff and Nathan on enough, you're going to hear actually some uh, things on Sunday mornings that you may have heard a little bit of before. But uh, the reason why we're doing it this way is uh, we actually want to lay out in the first 8 to 12 weeks the stuff that's really, really central and critical for uh, the uh, DNA of the church. And so for the next three weeks, we're actually going to be doing some stuff on idolatry because uh, we actually think that idolatry... Yeah, my big studies guys are going uh, again. This, for some of them, it could be three times, right? But the reality is, even if you've heard it before, the chances are that, that you haven't got it nailed yet and you'll uh, find out more about that. The preacher doesn't have it nailed and, uh, in fact, pretty much no one has got it fully nailed. So... We're going to load this, uh, we'll load the gun, so to speak, today. Probably, uh, if you've been here the last two weeks, uh, this is where it starts to get a bit more personal. Uh, but I think that's appropriate because I think God makes things personal most of the time too. So uh, we might uh, just get started. This is uh, an interesting uh, screenshot from uh, the internet this morning, 9MSN this morning, actually. You can see the uh, top 10 uh, national headlines. I think there's 10 there. Are... Uh, Industrial fire destroys warehouse, two charged over Crown Casino assault, drug charges at Sydney's Long Bay Jail, teen missing on freezing Victorian Peak, that'd be painful, second murder charge over Adelaide death, Sydney man shot in the face, that also would be painful, uh, PM sends a message of support to Steins, no more handouts for Aboriginals, you're on a pingu, did I say that right? No, I got the correct, no, I don't know. Australia will weather the global crisis, the uh, government... Uh, secretive Freemasons open the doors, rah, 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 binge drinking project at the end. So what I'd love to do, actually, is I'd love um, to do a street talk. Uh, a little while ago, I went through down Margaret Street, actually, just talking to random people, found a few narcissists out there because there's usually plenty of them that want to be uh, interviewed and be on a camera and be on a screen somewhere. So we talked to them. I showed it on 19 Camp. It's really interesting. Ask this question. Maybe I'm going to ask this question. Ask this question of yourself. What's actually the problem with people? What's wrong with people? Why do we have a whole bunch of headlines like that? What, what's actually the fundamental thing that's actually wrong with people? I would love to walk up and down Margaret Street asking people what they think is wrong with people. Because, you know, almost every single person has a take about what's actually wrong with people. And, in fact, if you... Um, get to a place personally where you're not able to manage the things that are broken inside of you, you tend to go to some sort of therapist. You go to a uh, psychologist, a psychiatrist, a counsellor, someone who's able to actually help you to work through the bits and pieces about what's happening in your life, find out what's wrong with you, and then bring some sort of resolution to it. You may be surprised at this, but prior to uh, the turn of the century into the 1900s, psychologists were wholly and solely dedicated toward medical things. They actually weren't therapist, counsellor type people at all. They were only medical people. Anyone like to guess who did all of the psychological, emotional counselling prior to 1900? Ministers in the church. So what we've actually got in our society is prior to uh, roughly 1900, I think Freud started kicking around about 1895, you've actually got the church that lo that's looking after people and the core human condition. You get to 1900 and Freud is starting to get a few of his ideas out, then Adler comes along, throws in his stuff, and for the last 100 years, by and large, the church has been very, very silent about what the core human condition is. And arguably, churches have actually gone to the point where they've 
talking about the fact that it's, it's actually surface level sins that are the core problem with people. Now, sins are a problem. Jesus came to deal with sins. But I actually don't think sin per se is actually the core problem with people. And the church has been silent on this. Just as an interesting note, the, uh, the word uh, or the phrase psyche, when it gets translated into German, I, this is what I understand, actually gets translated as soul. So if you think about Freud being a German, Freud theoretically was a soul therapist. Now if you went into a psychologist now or a psychiatrist and said, oh, you are, are you a soul therapist? They'd go, no way. Because most of them actually don't believe in the soul in terms of a, uh, a non-physical part of your body that's actually spiritual. So everyone's talking about the self now. That's what we talk about. We talk about self-esteem, self-acceptance, uh, well-being of the self. And uh, arguably, we're probably in a far poorer place than what we used to be. But if you go to one of these therapists, they're going to have a number of suggestions as to what your actual problem is. They will have a diagnosis for you. If you go to uh, most psychiatrists, you'll actually hear Freudian psychiatry. That's really what it is. And Freud ultimately said that the destiny of your life um, was programmed in in the first six years of your life. So the deal is, if you've got uh, dysfunction and issues in your life, is that you need to go back to the first six years of your life and reprogram it, in a sense. And that's the, the stereotypical idea of someone lying on a couch and the guy sitting there with a clipboard. Everyone knows that one? Yeah, that's what it is. That's, that's the Freud one, right? Is that really what's wrong with you? Well, the Bible would say that the things that happen to you in zero to six are significant, but the Bible actually wouldn't say that zero to six is ultimate. Freud says it's ultimate. Here's another one. Behaviour therapy. This is absolutely rife in schools. And there's actually some books at Kurong. You, you just better believe that the stuff that you buy at Kurong is not all inspired by God. There's some stuff. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Have a New Husband by Friday. Have you seen that one? Well, I was going, yeah, I have, and I've tried it, and it doesn't work. All right? have, a new hus- have a new kid by Friday. Well, you've got to be really careful because a lot of these kind of books at Kurong, what are they? They're actually behaviour therapy. And the whole idea of behaviour therapy is if we change the rewards and punishments, we actually change behaviour. That may be true for a time, but is that what's ultimately wrong with people? That they don't have the right rewards and punishments? Interesting question. I don't think it is. It doesn't work as well on adults. It works well on kids, but it doesn't work as well on adults. It's like, okay... Uh, if I give you a Mars bar, will you stop committing adultery? <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? It's just rewards and punishments. Yeah, there's some sort of mechanism there. Does the Bible offer rewards to people? Absolutely it does. Does God offer rewards to people? Yeah, he does. But is, does that, is that ultimately what the Bible says is the core human condition? And the answer is no, it's not. Here's a bit of a favourite of, uh, of Christians. And it actually gets really close to the mark. Cognitive behavioural therapy is this whole idea that uh, your life is dysfunctional because you're thinking irrational thoughts, which I think is hilarious because uh, I've just been taught a whole bunch of stuff about this and people who teach this are relativists. They actually think that there isn't anything objective, but then they sit there and they say, you have an irrational thought, which means that you have a wrong thought and there's a right thought and you need to think the right thought to have a better life. Now, I'm I'm not wanting to trash them by what I'm saying, but this is basically what they say. 
they actually have an objective thought that's better than your objective thought or what you thought was an objective thought, it'll work far better for you. So the question I would ask you is, from your knowledge of what's in the Bible, is that what the Bible says is the core problem with people, that they have dodgy thoughts? I think the answer is no. Is it true that sometimes people have dodgy thoughts and that messes them up? Absolutely. Does the Bible concede that in places? Absolutely it does. But does it say that it's actually the ultimate issue? The answer to that is no. Person-centred therapy. Oh, jeez. It just gets worse. All right? Uh, this is like solutions-focused, person-centred stuff. These are the people that, that walk in. And I, don't, I hope that you haven't ever had it to you, ever had this kind of therapy. You might have, and it might have worked for you. So that's, if it did, that's cool. But if you walk in to someone who's a person-centred therapist, their bottom line is that you actually have the solutions inside of you to solve your own problems. Right? So the deal is, you sit down, they help you to find your own solutions, and then you give them like 70 bucks. <laughs> See the issue there? So it's like, thanks. You should be paying yourself. Is what you should be doing. Give yourself a gift certificate to Maya. And then you've got this one, which is the predominant lifeline approach, which has merit. And all of these have got a slice of truth in them, right? But I actually don't think any of them are ultimate. The strengths-based approach is not just you've got the solution inside of you to solve your issues, but not only that, but you actually have all of the strengths inside of you to deal with all the issues that are going to come your way. Which sounds really nice and it's really affirming, except it actually will immune people to the gospel because the gospel says the opposite, doesn't it? It says you actually don't have the stuff that you need to solve your issues. But yet, if you go out and you preach, you've got the strength. You've, it's very, this is very humanistic. And then you get Kurong stuff, right? Which sometimes is really good and sometimes is really bad. All right? I'm going to give you an example of one that's really, really bad that looks good. Controversial today, isn't it? It had to come. Everyone who knows me has just gone, the last two weeks have just been really nice. And now he's just getting ugly, right? If you go to Kurong, has anyone here ever read the book, The Five Love Languages? Okay, excellent. There is a whole slab of the five love languages that is good information, all right? The fact that people uh, receive love uh, certain ways and express love certain ways can be very, very helpful if you actually want to serve someone else and love them really well. But... Beware the underlying assumptions. Let me read you a quote from page 23. Could it be that deep inside hurting couples exists an invisible emotional love tank with its gauge on empty? Could the misbehaviour, withdrawal, harsh words and critical spirit occur because of that empty tank? If we could find a way to fill it, could the marriage be reborn? Could that tank be the key that makes marriage work? All right, so you got a beaker. I'm going to call it a beaker, right? Everyone's got like a beaker inside of them, a love beaker. All right? And this is actually, this is what he's saying is wrong with people. Your beaker's empty. All right? And if you could just get your beaker full, life would be sweet for you. And the way that you get your beaker full is uh, a very, um, look, it's, it's, it's the world's economy, if I can put it that way. He is basically saying in this book, if you go and you love people with their love language, what they will do is what? Tell me. They'll love you back with your love language, which is really what Jesus does, isn't it? Not. 
does he? He doesn't do that at all. But this is the economy that he actually uses in the book. Now, there's a lot of stuff in the book that's really good, but he's saying the ultimate issue is you've got an empty beaker. All right? So you can go home and someone will say, what was the sermon about? It was about beakers. I don't know. You've got an empty beaker. It is not the ultimate thing that's wrong with people. Let me tell you what I think is the ultimate thing that's wrong with people. I don't think what's wrong with people is that uh, they're not good enough. I don't think it's that uh, you sin. I don't think it's not that you don't get what you want. Uh, I don't think it's uh, everyone else's fault, which is a classic one. Um, we get this all the time at school. A student walked in a couple of weeks ago and there's some big dodgy stuff that they're doing and you just kind of go, what's going on? And Oh, it's everyone else's fault. It's uh, mum's fault. It's my stepdad's fault. Everyone else's fault. What's wrong with you is not everyone else's uh, deeds that they've done against you. What is wrong with you? Nice blow out there. What do you keep doing and why do you keep doing and wanting things that destroy you and make you f- feel guilty? Well, this will be my take on the biblical foundation for everything that's wrong with people. You've actually got a worship disorder. That's what you've got. Definitions. Where does the word worship comes from, come from? Well, it actually comes from an old English word, worship, which denotes the worthiness of the one receiving the special honour or devotion. And disorder is a physical condition in which there's a disturbance of normal functioning. So my thesis for you today to put out to you is uh, you've got a worship problem. And it's not just Christians that have a worship problem. Everyone's got a worship problem. When things get dysfunctional, you've got a worship problem. Hopefully I'll prove that to you by the end. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 1. I really encourage you to bring your Bibles to church um, because you just don't want to take what I'm saying as being gospel truth. I've worked pretty hard to make sure it is, but you need to take it away and check it. At the end of the day, I stand here encouraging you to follow God's word And I stand here, hopefully, expounding to you what God wants you to do. So if God wants you to do that, that's a pretty heavy thing. It's a pretty authoritative thing. It'll be really good for you. So you just better make sure that what I'm saying is the the real deal. All right? So it's good to check. And there were some people in uh, Acts called the Bereans that had a really good habit of checking the guy who wrote half the New Testament to make sure what he was saying was the truth. All right? They'd They'd hear Paul talking. They'd go home. They'd check it out, make sure it was true. Because if it is true... It has a massive claim on every single person here. Here we go. Romans 1. Start at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the issue with humans is, biblically, the issue with humans is never the lack of evidence, but the suppression of it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are, so they are without excuse. We kind of talked about this on the first week of the project, if you were here. God being creator makes him central, whether people recognise him as that or not. For although they knew God... They didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And here's a really critical couple of verses. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Imagine this. 
I've got a clip there, but I don't think I'm going to show it to you. It was a clip off the ABC News. I don't know whether you know this, but you know, Prince Philip um, had a birthday recently, and this was a clip off the ABC News. There is a whole tribe in Vanuatu that worship him as a god. True. Amazing. And it's this three quarters of the clip is just the story of his birthday, and then at the end, there's these people come out of nowhere and they say, When we think about Prince Philip, when we talk about Prince, Prince Philip, it brings us life. Serious. Bizarre stuff, really bizarre stuff. I uh, asked one of my boys yesterday, because I often talk about what I'm going to preach about. I said, what do you reckon? What do you reckon if there was someone somewhere in the world or some people in the world that decided to worship you as a god? He's going, oh, he wouldn't do that. But No, no, just imagine. Imagine there was, right? Someone who would worship you as a god. How would you feel if they made like a lizard as a a visual representation of you and worship, it was Geordie actually, worship Geordie the Great Lizard? Would you like that? He goes, no, no, I wouldn't like that at all. But this is exactly what we do, isn't it? And in a sense, it's exactly what the uh, Israelites did after they came out of Egypt, didn't they? Imagine the insult for a God that can't be depicted in a drawing, can't be fashioned into a statue, getting made into a cow. I mean, seriously, would you like that? If someone worshipped you and they thought, yeah, I'm going to make a cow. <laughs> you'd be insulted, wouldn't you? Because you'd think, man, I hope I'm more than a cow. You know, I hope I'm more than a potty calf. Hopefully. Some of you are going, oh, I think I might be potty calf. <laughs> All right. But what about that? That's just, anyway, let's move on. We continue on. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves Here is the absolutely critical section of Romans chapter 1 in terms of worship. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the rather than the... Interesting, isn't it? Right? Interesting. What's the creature? The creature's anything that's actually been made. So Paul's actually saying the issue with people is that they're actually worshipping the creature instead of the creator. And what you actually get is you actually get a dominion inversion. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them. This is to Adam and Eve at creation. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What's that word right there? Is that dominion? That's not dominion. All of a sudden, what's actually got dominion over them? The creature does, doesn't it? Why has the creature got dominion over them? The creature's got dominion over them because they're worshipping and serving the creature rather than the creator. What do you get dominion over if you worship the creator? What do you get? Everything else. But if you worship the creature... it gets dominion over you. And so what you've got is Adam and Eve got dominion over creation and what you've got because we've worshipped something else is you get a dominion inversion. And as good as our worship gets sometimes, and I'm talking worship holistically, 24 hours a day, not singing worship alone, although I think worship happens there also, I'm talking worship 24-7. There's no one here who actually gets that worshipping the Creator 100% of the time. So there are times for all of us, aren't there, where creation gets dominion over us and we become slaves to it because we're worshipping the wrong thing. 
This is uh, from Time magazine uh, in May this year. I think it's the most bizarre thing. The US soldiers walk through poppy fields in Afghanistan that you make heroin out of, defending the people growing the poppies because that's one of the greatest exports for Afghanistan. And then, in America, they're spending all this money as well stopping drugs from coming into the country and trying to bust people. But these people here, see these? These are the well-known heroin addicts, Af Af Afghan heroin addicts. Down the bottom there it says, the poppy poison heroin, Afghanistan's most lucrative export, ravages lives at home as well. Is that not a really good visual picture of the Dominion inversion? They're huddled under blankets in a stone shelter, shooting up. A little caption there is this, addicts shelter in bomb buildings within sight of Kabul's presidential palace. Isn't that the case with their culture? The presidential palace of being with God and being in God's kingdom is so close, yet there's people who are just victims, in inverted commas, slaves, because of their worship disorder. So what you've got, the way God created it at the start, was like this. God is a continuous outpourer. He always pours out of his fullness. He is loving and he's gracious out of his fullness and he's merciful out of his fullness and he's just out of his fullness. And every other character trait of God just comes out of his fullness, right? And the way he's made all of you is you would actually be oriented toward him. God didn't make you to worship. God made you worshipping. You just worship all the time. And it's not a decision. It's not like you go, I'm going to worship now, but when I get home, I'm just not worshipping. I'm in a neutral zone. No, that's not the case. Human beings worship all the time. They were made worshipping, which is why I disagree with worship leaders who stand up and say, let's come and worship. And I just think, well, you already are. Everyone's already worshipping. All of you came into church today worshipping something. So in my view, the worship leader ought to stand up and say, let's turn our worship toward Christ. Let's turn it to Jesus. Because the issue is never whether someone's worshipping. The issue is what they're worshipping. Check this quote out. This is, actually, I'll ask you a question first before I go to that. Does God, as an example, does God have less mercy after he's given you some? What's the answer to that? Why not? Because he's unlimited. And if he had less, that would indicate that he has a finite amount. God doesn't have a finite amount. He has an infinite Infinite amen. All right? Which is, and this is interesting because often for us, we pray to God like he's got a finite amount of love. Can you just spare a little love for me right now, you know? Or a bit of mercy. I just need a little bit of grace. And, oh, I feel like I'm really hassling you, like, you know, because he's got a lot. Everyone's going, yeah, he's got lots. He's got plenty for everyone. But we often just think it's finite. But it's not finite. This is Harold Best. This is God. He cannot but give of himself, reveal himself, pour himself out, even before he chooses to create and before he chooses to reveal himself beyond himself. He eternally pours himself out to his triune self in unending fellowship, ceaseless conversation and immeasurable love unto an infinity of the same. Good question that you could ask for uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims. If their God is loving... Who was he loving before he created anything? 
The Muslims will tell you that he existed, but he existed on his own. How does a loving person love if they're on their own? Jehovah's Witnesses, are, it's a similar question you could ask them. What Harold Best is saying is that God exists in a trinity and he infinitely expresses himself to the three members of the Godhead, the God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. One of my uh, year nine, Christian, nine, ten Christian studies classes, they said, so how, how does that Trinity thing work? Well, there's one God and then there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't get it. I'm going, you get it. Because <laughs> that's going to the Trinity. It just kind of makes your head spin, right? It's just, but can you explain it to me? Well, kind, well, kind of, like water, ice, uh, vapor. No, not really. Because the closest thing doesn't really work, does it? But the critical issue here is that God actually doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need creation. And one of the big questions for Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims is, why doesn't your God need creation to be loving? God doesn't. What about us? Another quote from Harold Best. We begin with one fundamental fact about worship. At this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it, is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit or God through Jesus Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby, thereby and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or of evil. No one is exempt and no one can wish to be. Let this last sentence ring in your heart. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshippers and will remain so forever. Every single person. So now, you know what we've got? Not the perfect combination where we've made unceasing worshippers and got an unceasing outpourer, but we've actually got the perfect mess now because what do people do? People have gone to idolatry. They've turned their worship around to other things. Another quote. The fall did not single signal the end of worship or continuous outpouring. Something deeper happened, far down in our being, whereby our entirety was inverted and turned to ruin. We chose to believe a lie spoken by one with whom truth is impossible, but who skillfully dresses falsehood in light. We took to this reverse light and were immediately lost and undone. Our outpouring was falsified, but it continued with one telling difference. We exchanged gods. We turned from the only one who is not creature and were left not in a persisting vacuum. This would have been a premature hell but with a new plethora, the universe of innumerable false gods, false religions, and the religionising of anything that catches our fancy. So if we go right back to the first slide today, what's the problem with the world? The problem with the world is a worship disorder. And you know what? I'll throw it out. Next week is going to be the application because this is kind of the theology and next week's the application and I really want to flesh out a whole bunch of uh, worship disorder in society because it's absolutely rampant. I'll give you a really quick one. You know who knows that the problem with people is a worship disorder is Lady Gaga. She knows that. And next week I'm going to show you some quotes from Lady Gaga where she says that she's on a mission to help people to worship themselves. She uses that language. Everyone else has kind of been teaching it for a while. She's come out as one of the ones who is the most overt about the fact that there's a worship problem and you need to worship yourself more. Amazing stuff. I've got some interviews from her. You'll see some of that stuff next week if you come back. David Powlison says this. He says, we become infested with idols. John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us 
is from, is from his mother's womb expert in inventing idols. Christians included. And Chesterton says this, when a man stops believing in God, he doesn't then believe in nothing. He believes in anything. They're all saying people just swap gods. That's what happens. What do you get? What's the consequence of swapping gods? For this reason, this is Romans 1, for this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, lesbianism, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error, homosexuality. Where does sexual depravity come from? It comes from worshipping the creature. And I'm not, having, I'm not saying homosexuality is the only sexual depravity. I think you've got about ten different sins in the Old Testament that you could have been put to death for, and only one of them is homosexuality. Another one's adultery. I'm not singling any out. This is the interesting thing. I mean, I love, I absolutely love what city women do. If you know what city women do in terms of working with girls. And they, to be honest, they're doing a great job mopping up the damage that, that's actually been caused. But why are girls getting in, into trouble in the first place? The answer is because our society worships sex and sexuality. This is what amazed me. I went over to uh, Indonesia last year and uh, we were in Bali for a while and then we went over to uh, Jakarta, so we are in Java. And Bali's very uh, kind of Hindu and it's kind of no holds barred in terms of, I mean, you, everyone, they kind of embrace everything. When you get to Jakarta in Java, it's a very tight Muslim area. And it, I didn't even notice it in, uh, in Jakarta, but there were no skanky women's clothing, pictures. There, there was no skanky uh, marketing. Uh, people were fully, like, fully dressed, and it was pretty warm. They were fully dressed. And I, to be honest, I didn't even notice it. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't expecting it, but we were there for a week. And what was fascinating is we caught a connecting flight from uh, Jakarta back to uh, Denpasar in Bali. And, you know, the first time that I actually saw some skanky clothing on females was when we got to the departure lounge back to Australia. Interesting. Now, the message today isn't about that. I'm, I don't want to talk about modesty, but I just think it's an interesting thing. People coming from other cultures, I have no doubt, would come to the West and think that our God's sex and sexuality. One of them. And the irony is we sometimes can sit in condemnation of the Hindus and what goes on in Bali with the plethora of gods that they've got. But we're Hindu too, aren't we? We just don't think we are. We th especially Christians, especially me. You sit there and you go, I've got one God, Jesus. You just go, really? Or you're a bit like the Hindus in India that just want to add Jesus into my other set of household gods that I've got. So, getting back to the city women thing, the sad part about that is the battle is only going to be won when people realise there's a worship issue because it's, it's a worship of sexuality. So tomorrow night when you watch the news and there's some other perverted sexuality thing coming out on the nightly news, 
you probably should sit there and just go, there's a worship problem. There is a worshipper who's given themselves to that. And why wouldn't you expect in our society that we're going to have more and more of those stories on the nightly news because people are worshipping it more and more? True? That's where we're at. I mean, that's not the only one, but that's where we're at. I'm going to show you a clip from Spider-Man 3. Okay, you're all into Spider-Man, I know. Look, you're all just kind of in that demographic where you just go, oh, it's like all of a sudden I wake up at church because the Spider-Man movie's on, right? It goes for a couple of minutes. It's toward the end of the movie. There's somehow, and it still confuses me where it came from, but somewhere in this Spider-Man movie, some black gelatinous kind of blob has dropped in out of nowhere. Has anyone seen it? You know what I'm talking about? It just drops in and it, well, it's crawling around. So I don't even know. I don't know, don't ask me how it works, probably computer generated for sure, but there's this black blob and what it does is it takes over people and it took over Spider-Man for a little bit and then his arch nemesis kind of got it and what it does is it actually makes people really powerful and they really enjoy it, but uh, as you'll see in here, this is kind of the last face-off between the bad guy and the good guy, uh, here we go. Yeah, a whole bunch of you going, I've got to get the black blob, you know. Gonna get home, get home and hire that one. But there's an interesting quote in that, isn't it? Isn't there? Where he says, where the uh, is Spider-Man's arch nemesis basically says, "Being bad makes me happy, and I like being bad." But you know what being bad actually did to him ultimately is being bad was destroying him, and he was becoming less and less who he was, and ultimately, because he wanted the black stuff, he ends up getting killed by it. And this is exactly what idolatry does, isn't it? And false worship and worshipping other things because you bow down and you worship something. What is worshipping the God of sexuality going to do? It's going to destroy you. It will. But you know what? Why do people do it? Because it makes me feel good. Because I like it. And this is the whole trick and this is the whole lie, I think, that... uh, that Romans chapter 1 is talking about, that rather than believing the truth and worshipping and serving the Creator, people believe the lie and people get destroyed by the lie. And you and I, personally, get destroyed by the lie. Your spiritual life goes down the toilet when you're not worshipping God. It just does. And sometimes it feels good when you're worshipping something else. And next week, it just get, we'll get right down to big time specifics, but it could be anything. It could be food. I've got a whole bunch of clips that I'm going to show next week about people who say when they're sad, I go to the shops. Wasn't at Clifford Gardens just recently. They had a bumper sticker out called Retail Therapy. Seriously, that should be included for therapists almost because we actually believe it. A lot of people believe it. If I'm really sad, what do I do? I'm going to go and buy some stuff. Until my credit card's so big and my shares have dropped so much like they are at the moment that I'm so sad I can't buy my way out of it, which is kind of where America's at. Maybe that's a bit harsh, but there's probably some truth in that. They're up to their eyeballs in, in hock. Why? Because they've spent, spent, spent. And now maybe they're in a position where if the economy goes south, they've got no money that they can actually spend to get themselves out of trouble. God knows this. If you go to the top ten list, right, of laws in the Old Testament, what are the first two? Here's the first one. Don't have any other gods. That is explicitly a command about your worship. Don't get another God. Don't get another idol. Just don't get one. Just have one. Me. What's the second one? 
don't make a carved image of any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bear down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You know, Luther said this about the Ten Commandments. He said, if you obey the first two, you'll get the next eight right. That's what he said. And I reckon he's right. Get your worship right. You don't have to worry about committing adultery. You don't have to worry about lying, being dishonouring to your parents. You don't have to worry about coveting. You don't have to worry about murder because if you get the first two right, the rest will be sweet. There's an interesting barb at the end of uh, verse 6 there, isn't it? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I was talking to uh, Geordie one night at home, actually, and I, uh, I said to Geordie this. Geordie, what do you reckon it would be like if a man came in and wanted to have mummy as his wife instead of me having mummy as uh, my wife? I said, what would that be like? Because in most of our minds, often when you hear the word jealous, you think negative. So I asked him this. What do you think if someone else came in and wanted to be mummy to be his wife? I said, uh, would daddy be angry? That's what I asked him. He goes, yes. Yes, he'd be angry. And so I said to him, I said, uh, follow-up question, what would you think? You know what he said? He goes, I'd want to kill him. All right? But you know what that is? That's my son saying, my wife doesn't, Angela doesn't belong to another man. She belongs to me. I belong to her. So if another wife or another female comes along, if my wife didn't get jealous, what would that tell you? Probably she didn't love me. Agreed? If another man came in and I didn't get jealous and didn't get angry, that would probably say that I didn't love my wife. So you've got to understand that when God says stuff like this and he says, I get really, really jealous, you know what he's really saying? Is He's going, you're mine. You're mine. We covered this in uh, the first week here where we talked about the centrality of God in his creation. You know, it doesn't matter whether you love Jesus or not here, you're his. And he gets jealous about you. He doesn't want you to go and have an affair with another God. doesn't want it. And he gets jealous and angry about that. You know that story in the New Testament where the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus? It only just occurred to me recently, you know the questions that Jesus doesn't actually ask him until about the commandments. You know, Jesus says, uh, have you murdered anyone, committed adultery? And the guy goes, I've done, I've kept all the commandments. The only, com- well, there's a couple that he missed out, but the main commandments that he actually missed out were the first two, which are these ones. Because he knew, Jesus knew that the man's God, his idol, was his stuff. So Jesus, in his cunning innocence, Sets him up. Have you kept the commandments? God runs through them. I'm all good. Sell your stuff. Sell your God. And he walks away sad because he's not prepared to sell his God. It's one thing I've been saying in my senior bib studies class at the moment. It spins me out. You know, in the land of the long, wide smorgasbord, which is the West, is it not? Everything's a smorgasbord. Wouldn't you think that in churches you'd hear people confessing the sin of gluttony more often? Wouldn't you? Should there be a pastor at the exit door at Sizzler? (laughs) All right? Calling people to repent? 
Probably. What about this one? How often have you been to a small group where uh, someone's confessed the sin of covetousness? Now, wouldn't you think with the marketing machine out of control, marketing every single idol to you that you could possibly have, that you ought to hear in church sometimes people standing up and saying, I've got a problem with coveting. You know, not once in my life, to my memory, have I ever heard that. And I'm not sure I've ever heard the gluttony thing more than once or twice in my whole life either. And I've been in church my whole life. Why not? You know why? Because they're, the, they're two of the big idols of our age. Because I don't have a problem with coveting because I save my money. And as soon as I've got enough money, I'm going to buy what that guy's got. So I don't, I'm not, cover, not coveting. It's like temptation. I always tell people I don't have a problem with temptation. I just give in every time. So I don't need a support group to get that one done. Right? That's all sweet. Sorry, it's getting a bit personal, isn't it? Maybe we should move on. Check this out. Classic little clip. You'll love this. This is a uh, Citibank ad. We're actually on a, on a treadmill now. See, when you worship gets perverted to idolatry, you actually end up on a treadmill, and it's a tiring treadmill. This is one of the things I've been throwing out in my bid studies class at school here recently. You know, every single person is going to be a slave to something. The big question is, is the thing that you're a slave to actually going to bring freedom for you, or is it going to bring more bondage? It's a big question. I uh, remember talking in my office, the student left quite a, quite a long time ago, but I'll tell you this, I sat there with this student in my office who wasn't a Christian and uh, for all money, this guy, I'm not sure if any of you have heard of the, uh, the Adonis complex, but this guy for all money had an undiagnosed case of the Adonis complex. Does anyone know what that is? The Adonis complex is just an incredible fascination. It's, it's not really narcissism, but it's an incredible fascination with the person's own body. And actually they go and work out a lot. Um, this guy was just absolutely, I mean, you would say, and we'll talk, I mean, you would say that he was addicted to working out and to the shape of his own body. But as you'll find out if you come back next week, you'll hear this, and I'll tell you now, addictions, what's addiction? Addiction is just where creation has dominion over you because of your worship. That's what it is. I sat there with this guy for an hour, had a really interesting conversation. And then he came back, we had a second session that went for about an hour. He's in year 10. And at the end of that second session, I put up pretty much this list of words. I had it up on, on the window behind me. Because, you know, almost all of these words here are words that people think of when they actually think of worship. They're actually worship words. Desire, love, trust, believe, fear, obey, long for, value, pursue, hope, serve, sacrifice for, blessing, identity. They're worship-oriented words. And I said to this guy at the end of the second session that we had, I pointed up to the sheep behind me and I went through them. And I went through desire. I said, you, from everything that you've told me, you desire to work out. You desire to people, people to think well of you. You desire to, uh, to buy the right foods and to work out. You love looking good. In fact, this guy, to his own admission, would walk past the mirror in the morning and have a quiet time. But you know what? He wasn't, he wasn't worshipping God. He'd have his quiet time in front of the mirror and he'd 
in front of the mirror. I kid you not. So we went through it all. I said, you trust in this, don't you? You think if you look really, really good, it's going to achieve this for you. You trust in it and you serve it. One of his greatest fears to his own admission was either losing a limb or even getting injured, which actually did happen to him, because getting injured meant that he actually couldn't work out for a couple of days. And that would just put your weeks behind in terms of physical condition. He was sacrificing. He was expecting his God to bless him. He was gaining his identity from his God. He was hoping in it. He was pursuing it. He was longing for it. When he wasn't doing it, he was thinking about doing it. And I pointed all these words on the uh, window behind me and I said, you know what? You and I are every bit as religious as each other. We've just got a different God. And you know what he said to me? He said, you're exactly right. And this is a thing, is that people don't realise, they think you're either religious and you go to church or you're not religious. No, you just turn your religion to something else. You expect something else to bless you. You expect something else to give you your identity. You expect something else um, to come through for you. But people get tired when they're on that treadmill. What does Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty eight? This is what Diff was quoting earlier. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's possible that there's people here today who have got a little bit of an idolatry thing actually going on and you're really tired. Your expectation is that it will satisfy you, but it fails you. Sometimes it satisfies you and sometimes it doesn't. What does Jesus say? He doesn't say, come to me, you're not going to have to carry anything. No, he says, come to me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Idolatry and worship disorder says, come to me. An idol says to you, come to me, my yoke is easy and my burden is light and it lies to you. Because the burden of every idolatry is way, way heavier than what it actually promotes itself as being. Jesus' yoke brings rest. Brings rest. Final words, and then I'll show you a clip, and then we're done. Idolatry, a worship disorder, is not a sin. It's actually the sin which underpins all of the others. I think even pride. Pride has got to get right down to the core of where things are at, but what's pride ultimately? Pride's self-worship. That's what it is. Worship yourself instead of worshipping God. I think this, biblically, is a concept that just underpins everything else. And you know what this actually does? You ought to go out, if you're a Christian, you ought to go out and look at people who aren't Christians and instead of thinking, I'm the religious nut and they're not, you should be thinking, well, they're just as religious as me. And it all of a sudden, you've actually got a point of engagement with people because you're not just saying, you're a bad person, you did that bad thing to that child. All of a sudden, you're looking down inside of them and you're just going, ah, so you're worshipping and I can see how you're expecting that thing to bless you. I can, I can see how you're hoping in that thing. You're a slave to that thing, man. You check your Facebook account 15 times a day. You know, I mean, you've got the Afghan addicts huddled under their blankets... Uh, there's a lot of people huddled, not under a blanket, but over a computer keyboard, aren't they? 
status updates. There's people huddled over an Xbox 360. What is it? Well, it's kind of a, almost a worship pose, isn't it? Whether you believe in Jesus or not here today, everyone in this room is just as religious as each other. We just believe in different gods. This is absolutely true. Here we go. I'll play this last vid. Hopefully this works. Um, and then we'll just close. So this gives you a little bit of an idea. That this is what we're about at the project here. God wants, God seeks worshippers. Those who worship him in spirit and truth 24-7. And we actually think, uh, we're really looking forward to the opportunities that we're going to have to contribute to people who are part of the project here. But you just need to know that if most of the time, if you've got a real struggle and a really difficult thing happening in your life, somewhere in there, there's going to be a worship problem. It's not going to be the only problem, but there'll be a worship problem in there somewhere. And uh, part of the liberation is worshipping the right thing. Um, and also, that also illustrates how important community is, isn't it? Doesn't it? You need community. Because, you know, most people's worship disorder is different to the next person's. And sometimes you walk along and you just go, man, you know, I think you've got, a, you've got a real problem there, I think. Not in a rude way or a confrontational way, in a community, loving, brotherly, sisterly way. I think you've got a real problem. Man, you need to be liberated. You need the yoke of Jesus on you instead of that yoke because that's killing you. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and we're done. Jesus, thank you so much that you came, you died on the cross for a bunch of idolaters, of false worshippers. Thanks that you came, like we heard in the first week here, to turn our worship back to you. Thanks that you came to put a yoke on us that's lighter than any other yoke that we can have. God, I pray that uh, you just help us all to keep meditating on you and meditating on the fact that we are worshippers and the best place for us to be is in a place where we worship you unceasingly. I want to pray for real health, real spiritual health, Lord, as we turn and repent of our false worship and turn to you. I pray that you would just bring vibrancy back to us and that you would heal the parts of us spiritually that have been trashed by dodgy worship. Please bring healing in those areas. Lord, help us to take that healing to people who don't know you. There are so many people that are stuck in the bondage and the slavery to things that are killing them. And it's a worship thing, Lord. And thank you, Jesus, that you died for everyone in the world that you would turn their worship to you because that's the best place for them to be in. Amen.